You've found the Virtually Possible podcast. Join the discussion on future of work, organizational design, and personal growth. Welcome to episode 17, my friends, in which I have the utmost pleasure to grab a virtual coffee with Monika Kanokova. Monika is a creative freelancer veteran, accomplished writer. She has written three books, which you can find in the show notes on how to run your own freelancing business. She's a TEDx speaker. In her talk in Lent in 2019, she talked about positive ways of using social media and steering away from toxicity on the internet. She's also a prolific blogger and a consultant for startups and NGOs. Recently, following her passion for sustainability and to help solve some of the most urgent climate change issues. She has launched a new sustainability design agency, New Standard Studio, with Max Mauraha, another excellent designer. They're based in Kreuzberg and actually are looking to welcome other passionate startups and individuals in their co-working space near the canal. So if you're one of those people, make sure to reach out to Monica. For now, I would like to welcome Monica to the podcast and dive into her story and plans for 2021. Welcome, Monica. Hi, thank you for the lovely introduction. I'm very grateful that you've made the time in your very busy schedule. You are really a titan of work, not only, you know, as a writer, as a freelancer, as a consultant, and now as a head of the new agency. Thank you. You just made it sound extremely busy and big. Because before you turn on the recording button, we actually talked about how no one can say that no one has time for cooking anymore, because clearly everyone has time for cooking now. How like what we do has shifted so much. Work is probably the easiest avenue of distraction, of distraction (laughs) and of spending time on something that we think creates value. I think if we had the chance or we had the choice to do something else, we would probably much rather divide that time into a bit more pleasure and maybe even cooking for myself, which like, as I said, before we started and trying to get better at, I wanted to start off with a little bit of a background story of yourself, because you've come a long way from Vienna all the way to Berlin through many, many places and many different jobs and many different projects. So if we maybe can dissect into your story a little bit, that would be, that would be a great start. So the great start wasn't even in Vienna. I was born in the Czech Republic and I was lucky to move away at the age of 14. And I moved to Vienna because my father was working there as a guest worker nurse. Turns out that in the Czech Republic, they weren't too impressed about having male nurses and the Austrians just needed nurses so much that they decided to hire nurses from other countries despite their gender. And it's kind of funny because... Now, with all these discussions online about equality and role models and what we've sort of seen in our lives, I keep coming back to it because to me, it's always been normal that a man can be a nurse and that my mother was the one that didn't want to even like clean up my butt as a baby. But my father was happily doing that for other people. So it's like what we see in our lives really has a huge impact. And so... What I've seen in my life very early on was my mother, my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers, they were always suing. And I sort of had this idea that I want to be a fashion designer because it was, it seemed attainable and it seemed Mm -hmm. like something that I could do because it seemed like there weren't that many options, right? I was from a small village. And so what I saw the women in my life do was sewing and making clothes And I didn't really have that many men in my life. And 
Then I happened to move to Austria where suddenly my horizon of possibilities started expanding, but I was on this trajectory of really wanting to become a fashion designer. And the longer I was learning about fashion and about how the fashion industry works, the more I realized that's not an industry that I want to be a part of because in the Czech Republic, to me, fashion had a very high status just because it was almost unattainable. Mm-hmm. And with fast fashion in Austria that I suddenly had access to, clothing was sort of worthless and people would just buy it and throw it away and it didn't really mean anything. And I was at the time already going to a fashion school. And in that fashion school, I realized that making clothes just takes so much longer and that it was absolutely impossible for me to make a living out of making clothing if I could just go to a shop and then buy those same clothes for 20, 30 40 euros. It's like I could not make a living out of it. And so I started learning more about fashion, about sustainability of fashion, sustainability of production. And then being on this already very creative career path or like educational career path, I decided to study interior architecture only to realize that interior architecture has the same circularity that fashion also has, sort of the same cycle of being very modern and then going out of fashion. And that's the first learning. Fashion just cannot be sustainable because fashion is meant to be outdated. And it's the same for interior architecture. And I felt very kind of disappointed about how people just don't value the things that they create, that they are surrounded by, because obviously coming from an Eastern European country, to me, something like that had much much more value because no one could ever afford anything. And it's only now, 20 years later, that I really keep coming back to it of how much I've learned about valuing things and valuing people just from the scarcity that I've seen in my surrounding as a child. We've been so primed to value things very differently because of our upbringing. When you were a kid, you probably thought this is not the best childhood because you cannot have all the shiny things. But now I actually find it so relieving that I'm more of a minimalist than than a hoarder of things. Yeah, because in the end, you know, it's just things. So they don't really matter that much. It's better to have fewer of them to me and value them than have a ton and have them being meaningless to you it's true simultaneously i did go through the period of just like buying a lot of clothes just because just because i suddenly could you know it's like i suddenly just wanted to own things and own a lot of things so i sort of went from not being able to to just wanting and getting everything i could get my hands on and then being in this post-consumerist state of mind of being able to let go of it Mm. which definitely was a journey. But when I was about to finish my uh, my studies, I got an email from an agency that was hiring that somehow I ended up in communication and in digital communication, just because to me at that moment, I was like, that's great. I don't need to produce anything that no one needs. Mm-hmm. I'll just write. I'll just do the talking. I'll just bring people together. And so I've really focused on different things with how I've been making money in the past couple of years, just out of this pure desire of not wanting to produce more shit that no one needs. But before I went into just straight on communication, where it's all about bringing people together and gathering them around ideas, I worked for an advertising agency for six, seven months just to 
understand how that works mm-hmm. because I've always been a nation of how can you make people desire something that they might not even know that they want. This is my very broad career description without giving too much away from what people actually can read online, I guess. Yeah, I mean, your blog is so amazing. There's so many interesting articles people can read and your TED talk is awesome. I really loved it. Thank you. (laughs) You also have a very cool Instagram that we will link to and um, yours and obviously your dogs, the cutest dog on earth. She is. Yeah. yeah, she wasn't allowed to stay at home today just because she would just come over all the time and try to be on the podcast with me as she does. Because okay. as soon as there's a microphone and a laptop out, she's immediately next to the computer and trying to get the attention. Okay. Okay. So you said you started with the internship at the agency and then also in a little bit in advertising, but how did you get into writing? I think more so even specifically, I'm thinking about, you know, how did you get the idea to write books? When we last spoke, you said you were writing another one back in 2020. So I just wanted to get an idea of how you found that to be your passion. So 2014 and 14, I've worked for a startup in Berlin and it was all about corporate culture, team culture in businesses. And we had this blog where we portrayed the different team, like the different community members. And it was always very easy for me to get men talk about their work, but it was really, really hard to have women talk about what they did. And I couldn't I was already back then trying to get a 50-50 ratio of just like having the same amount of men that are being featured and the same amount of women, but the women just kind of, it just wasn't easy. And back in the days I was in a long distance relationship or like I happened to get into a long distance relationship. And so it was very clear for me that I just couldn't get another nine to five jobs. And in 2021, it just kind of sounds impossible. But in 2014, no one understood the concept of home office or remote work that just didn't exist. But I just didn't feel comfortable going to a company and being like, I'm going to be here Monday till Friday, nine to five. It just didn't make sense to me. And so I decided to go freelance. But I also, because it wasn't something that was planned, it wasn't something that I necessarily, that was necessarily normal. Right now it is the new normal, being a freelancer, working remotely, working from home, sitting in whatever Bali and then working. Those concepts now exist. Back then it wasn't the case. And so I decided to write a book. I just went to the women that I knew started a company or were freelancers and I asked them about how they did it, how they started, what was their business model, how they learned to charge money. And I sort of wanted to know this very upstarting opinion of women that have made it that I could then turn into my role models. And I just got so much value from these interviews that I decided to turn it into a book and then publish, which I did using Kickstarter. And then a couple of months later, I just had no projects coming in. And that's sort of the first learning that could have already come up when we first started talking where you said like, oh, everyone's busy. Well, with the second book, my big question was, what do freelancers do when they have no work? Mm, And the, the big answer to it is if you have savings on the side, which is a very important thing to have, try not to get work in that very second. Try to do something that builds your 
reputation and try to do something that you can monetize later. And so the second book is all about how do you invest time to turn your knowledge into a product that you can then sell independently of your time and eventually also scale that. And that I think is a very important lesson for now during Corona. It really is about investing time into something that can eventually be turned into money because right now getting fresh money in or like money from new income sources, it's just very hard, almost impossible, I would say. Just so important to understand that everything you do compounds, that sometimes even though initially something you're doing doesn't necessarily immediately turn into euros or any other currency, but the fact that you can produce something, produce some content and produce a product, like you said, or, or design a service and then grow it, that already is a, a very good first step to creating something that might be tangible. And, and for sure, whenever, even probably in the process of writing a book, right? Like you're not getting paid. So you need to have that longer term horizon and thinking, okay, this will amount to a body of work. And also I, I imagine you learn writing the books, doing the interviews and then writing your first and second book, you must've had so much learning also about yourself and about your own process. What helps you write? What disturbs you from writing? Are there any interesting uh, takeaways that you've had for yourself as you were writing? So I would say writing the books has always been like therapy because I had to go through the books so many times. And also I would transcribe the interviews by now. I think you can pretty much automate it when you just upload that file that mm -hmm. also didn't exist back then. I actually really went in and transcribed everything by hand and manually. So this was the first session of therapy because I just re-listened to the interviews. The second part was to then edit the interview. So really puzzle around with the answers to make it more compelling for a reader. And then also writing the opinion pieces that are in between where it's my opinion or, the, or my takeaways mm -hmm. that sort of contextualize what people said in the interviews. So it was just like going over the same concepts and ideas over and over again and figuring out how to put it in a way where someone who has not been through the interview or hasn't thought about it as hard just get as much benefit as possible and so it really it's it's very therapeutical to just think through different scenarios in detail which is pretty much what writing has been for me but you send me the questions up front and one of the questions was writing routine and I read it and I was like, oh my gosh, I wish I had a writing routine mm -hmm. because then I would actually manage to write regularly because when you really observe what's happening, it's like the most successful writers are so organized and dedicated that they actually manage to put out something regularly. And my attention is so all over the place that I'm, I always say I'm not a marathoner, I'm a sprinter. I can get something done very quickly, but then I already do something else. And that's why like having a writing routine and having this like long-term working on something continuously is really not me. And you also mentioned that I'm working on another book and it's been, oh my gosh, I started in May, I think. And it's been so long and when I really, because I track the days when I'm writing, it's like I've been writing on 40 days over the past year, but it definitely hasn't been a consecutive process. But also at the same time, I guess it points to the fact that there's no one right way to do it, that 
people who are not maybe necessarily super organized and don't write daily can also write books and they're excellent books. So that's a, that's a very hopeful way of thinking about things because it, there's a place for everybody and there's a place for those non-routine routines as well, right? Like maybe maybe for you and for how your mind works, it's just easier to do those sprints rather than force yourself to do it every day. I, for instance, have issues even journaling every day, even if it's three minutes. I admire those people who manage to do that. I really do. I have a journal in front of me. And even if I was supposed to write one sentence, sometimes I just look at it and I don't even open it. So I, I don't think, you know, again, I don't think there's, a, there's one way of doing things. So maybe a different question would be, how do you get yourself to writing when you don't have a schedule? Okay, so there is one tip that I've read and that I would definitely just confirm on every level. And it was by a writer who said, you don't write a book by scheduling one month away from everything and then you go to this like house in the middle of nowhere to write your book, this like romantic idea of the process of writing a book. She said that's bullshit because you can only really write a book if it's just one of many things that you do. And if writing that book or working on that, whatever that project is, becomes the most exciting thing that you do. And so it's not about, because you know how we have this like big thing that we put so much meaning into and it's so important to us. And it really is just stopping us from actually pursuing that because we are so, so concerned that we are going to screw up. If you go to this house and your whole thing is writing a book and you've sort of like worked towards being able to do that, then it will build up in your head so much as this like big task that you have to be really good at that that's just not going to happen. And so instead of it is most creative work and most books is written during times when you do a lot of different things because then writing becomes an escape. It's not even writing. It can be anything creative. It's like mm -hmm. if someone likes to paint or draw, then it's really about making that sacred time and space for pursuing that activity and prioritizing it without building it up that this is so important. Mm -hmm. But going off of having many things to do at once, and being busy. Can we talk a little bit about your new agency? Because when we met last year, mid last year, this was something that you've been dreaming of building and uh, it finally came to fruition. So I know a little bit about your background with the sustainability studies and uh, your interest in there, but maybe you could give our audience a bit of that story and then, and then how you finally found Max and were able to, to start the agency. It's a very funny story. So it actually really is just because I said to my friends, I would like to start a company with someone second. And I'm still kind of open-minded about what this other person brings to the table. I just don't want to be by myself anymore. And so my friends started introducing me to people that they knew that they thought were interesting. This is also how we met because we yeah, had exactly. a conversation about, you mm -hmm. know, should we start something together? And so I was really just like talking to people in my surrounding and I've met some really absolutely incredible people through that. And then the most unexpected thing happened. So Max and I met nine years ago when I needed a designer uh, to design my master thesis that was about sustainability. And back then he was 
18 or 19, hasn't even finished his high school diploma. And he was like, I'm going to do this. And so that's how we met. And he was living in Tirol and I was living in the Netherlands back then. And then I moved back to Vienna. He was living in Vienna. Then I moved to Berlin a little bit later. He moved to Berlin. Then I moved away. Then he stayed in Berlin. Then at some point I moved back to Berlin. And you have to imagine there is a seven year age difference between us. So it is quite special that for all these years or it's been it's 10 years now so we met 10 years ago so in all these 10 years every couple of months if we were in the same city we would meet up and we would cook for each other so one time I would cook and then we would say oh it's it's again it's your turn to cook for the other person and so we sort of like always would catch up and just talk about what's happening and there was never like it was just nice, no expectations, nothing. And he was working for various agencies and was self-employed and was doing a lot of great stuff. And he's an absolutely incredible designer, probably the best designer that I know, just because he's so versatile and so smart. But I never, ever thought about starting a company with him. And one day when we were supposed to meet up again for our, you know, every couple of months seeing each other, we met for a glass of wine that turned into a bottle or maybe two. And he said, um, I also want to discuss something with you. And I was like, oh, okay, that's great. And so I sit down and he says, and that's something that I think every creative or entrepreneurial person can sort of understand. He said, so, you know, two days ago, I got this email notification that one year ago, I registered this URL and that it's now being automatically extended. And oh my gosh, I still haven't done anything about it. And I was like, well, what do you want to do? And he was like, I just really want to start a sustainably producing design studio. And I look at him and I'm like, you are not serious, are you? And he was like, yeah, yeah. I really want to like, before someone else does this, I'm so tired of just like all the advertising and everything that is just being done the way it is. I just really want to start a sustainable design studio, but it needs more substance. And I look at him and I'm like, you know that I've been looking for someone second to start a company with. And he was like, no. And then we sort of wrote down on a napkin. It's like a classic napkin story. Mm -hmm. He wrote down on a napkin what sort of our idea is of what this should become. It kind of made sense. We clinched our glasses. We were like, this is great. This is what we are going to do. Let's meet up in a week and discuss it in more detail. And so we knew that we are going to start a company together, but we haven't quite discussed the details yet. And then everything's just been flowing ever since pretty much. But it wasn't actually me asking Max if he wants to start a company together with me. It was sort of Max being like, I want to do this. And what do you think? That's so cool. (laughs) And also, oh my God, like how amazing it is when universes collide and especially that, you know, the stories of finding a co-founder are usually horrific and take forever because you cannot find a person that is exactly the one that you want to work with. And then you sometimes don't know them very well. And in this case, when not only did you guys know each other so well on a friendly level and you've known each other's work as well. Uh, but also just the, I think the yeah, similar minds and similar ideas together at the same time 
Uh, just... And also we met because of a sustainability project in the first place. And it's funny because it really came sort of out of the universe. And it's been so nice to work together because usually people have these things of like, how do we collaborate? And there are a lot of issues. And I wrote about it ages ago that I'm a fan of the 80-20 system where you do 80% of a task and then you pass it on to another person to finish off with like the 20%. But it's like you only expect them to do the 80% of the 20%. And then you sort of finish the last 20% of their, mm-hmm. of your original 20% in their, in their 20%. And then it can be handed over. And this is pretty much how we work. It's really collaborative. Like there is nothing that only one of us does. One of us starts something. The other one comments on it or changes things. And there's just no ego in who has done what or how does it have to be. But it's not about who did something or didn't. It's so much more about what's the output and does it make sense to someone else who is not in the same room with us. Yeah. Instead of the four of you, the two people and two egos, there's just really the two of you uh, working, which is great. That's a great mindset to have. And in the end of the day, I mean, ego is such a fake thing that doesn't help you in any way, really, when you're trying to build something or, or working on something. But when we think about what is that North Star for you as, a, as an agency, what are you guys trying to accomplish? That brings me back why I said, you know, the whole sustainability and being from an Eastern European country. So everyone is now talking about sustainability, but it's a really hard discussion because we are living and most of us have lived in a capitalist system for most of our lives. We have learned to do things a very certain way. Sustainability questions that think of how we have automated to do things. We don't think about the majority of the decisions that we make every single day. When we go to a supermarket, we have 40,000 products to choose from. And a regular average household chooses about 150 products out of those 40,000. And it's not a decision that we make every single time we go to a supermarket. It's a decision that we have made at some point, And then we just automatically take the same packages. It's about how we brush our teeth. We don't think about it. We just accept it. For women, so many times it's about, and now I'm talking about very personal sustainability. We have accepted that pets and tampons are sort of how we we do do things yeah we don't question it and there's just so much of this that we have always done it that way and we don't question that and in the meantime there have been better products better solutions developed but just because we have always done something a certain way why would we change that that makes no sense because it brings us out of our comfort zone we have to relearn new things it makes us insecure so Mm. it's You know, we are surrounded by this question of sustainability, but also hitting this very hard wall of we've always done it that way and it's worked. Yeah. Also just being human and having habits, right? And not wanting to put in effort because it's relearning. You need to rewire your circuits to do something harder, to read the label, to bring your own bag to the supermarket instead of um, always buying another paper one. So yeah, stuff like that for sure. And it's paper now. It wasn't paper, it was plastic before. Just a couple of years ago, it was normal to pay a little bit for a plastic bag. So it doesn't really matter. It's more that with this whole climate crisis and this sustainability debate, what we are really debating is our habits, our comfort. And now 
the whole sustainability discussion is really about scarcity and it's about sacrifice. And the mm -hmm. thing is, the one thing that we have to sacrifice and really give up is this idea of comfort because we have always done it that way. And that's a really tough one to change, but that's sort of where design comes in and why it's a really good thing that we are starting as a design studio that does sustainability, just because you can design systems and ecosystems that make sustainable behavior easy, where you don't have to consciously think about it. And that's where companies come in as a really great place to start. Because you can do it at scale. That's one thing, but it's much more about you do something together. And that was a part of the element that I always was missing because I always thought if you really want to change something, you have to start with kids. You have to start in a school. But when you really think about it, what is it in school that makes it such a good environment to implement change? And it's the community. It's just the fact that you bring in input. You have all these kids being together and learning from one another and sort of copying each other. But you have the very same experience in offices, in companies, where people have the identity of the company and learn and sort of normalize behaviors as a group. And so I really think that individual change is not the right approach just because it's way too hard and you have to think about way too many things and it takes forever because I've been, you know, looking into my own behavior for the past 16 years at least And it's like, I'm still failing at so many levels of just not getting out of my habit. But it's like, at least now I'm at a place where I can contextualize how I'm failing and sort of having this mental note of, I need to change that. But of course it's effort. And so I think it's so much more about focusing on the decision makers that make a decision for a large group of people and kind of enforce the more sustainable behavior onto them just because they standardize and normalize sustainability. Yeah, I think this is where we really agreed on that going through that channel of companies is much more impactful because you can really do it. Yeah, you can do it at scale and you can help people, like you said, normalize those new practices that are in the end in favor of their well-being, right? Like this is why we're doing this. And I think most people who already have kids and have families are far more open to adopting those new practices just because they see how big of a risk it is for their kids to not have that world available to them when they grow older. There's a very clear explanation for what you just said. And it's that at very certain times in our lives, we are much more open to change. And it's those life-changing moments where we are suddenly okay to changing brands that we buy and doing things differently than we did it before. And it's those moments where we get to ask ourselves the question of who we are and who we want to be and what that implies. Like, how do we create the person that we want to be? And most people in their lives don't go through this experience very often. When you move places, that's a moment where you're much more open to change just because you have to change so much that one more additional change isn't much of an effort. A new day at a workplace, that's a great moment to change things just because you have to rewire how you do certain things. You have to change your habits. And so one more habit to change is sort of an easy habit to change. And so it really is about having those life-changing moments. But the truth is the majority of people just don't have as many of them as I have been lucky to have. Just because I've moved so many times, 
I've lived in so many apartments. Like someone asked me in how many apartments I've lived in Berlin. It's 13 apartments. It's insane, you know? And so having all these first days of starting a new life phase in a way is a gift that I've been given multiple times, which is why I think it's much easier for me to really contextualize the systems of how do you make change easier. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating and so true. It's so true that when you move and yeah, yeah, those shifts in life really make it easier for you to adopt a new habit because you sometimes just have to, right? This is why new parents are so open to making those changes because the safety of their kid is so much more important than their old habit. And like once you create a new person in this world, it, it just completely changes your perspective. But this is also why in advertising, they are a major target group. People that move are a major target group. People that are about to have kids are a major target group because you can, on a large scale, you can simplify their needs and just deliver to that need using Facebook ads, using all these things. Mm. Not for long though. From the mobile perspective, I can tell you that advertising will change a lot this year because of all the privacy changes. Right now what's happening with advertising, I feel, is that the users or, you know, people like you and me who receive the ads, we really are not even prompted to think like, what is that you want? You're just being given the answer to a question you didn't even ask. So it's going to be an interesting, very interesting year for advertising and, and how people are making their consumer decisions. I think it was 2011, 2012. I worked for a strategic consultancy And I was making a lot of reports for companies of what is happening in the world. And so my Googling behavior was insane. And you can actually look up your advertising profile on your Google account and see how they cluster you in there, who you are. And I was 24, I think. And for Google, I was a 42-year-old man interested in finance and technology. That's hilarious. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And so it's like... Very stereotypical I, way of thinking about things. I know, but it also had to do with the clients that I was working on and uh, providing insights for. And so I've just always disabled all these customized uh, settings just because it made no sense for the work that I do. And I think it's also got to do with what type of tools you use yeah. because... I use Ecosia. I don't even use Google. Sometimes I look for something and I literally can't find it. And then I go to Google to check if they really are so bad with their SEO, because some people might be. It also makes sense to just use Firefox. You know, Firefox doesn't save up those details and provide advertising that is targeted to you specifically. So I think it really is about what sort of tools you use that does make it easier to not be advertised in a way where they really like they have a lot of smart psychologists working for these companies trying to sell stuff to you that you don't need i think it's a good start to just like change the tools that make you more exposed to whatever someone out there tells you that you need that you really don't because advertising is based on the idea of never enough like you are never enough you don't have enough someone else is better Like Cosmopolitan, the the target group isn't 20-something women. It's 17-year-old girls that dream of being 20-something women. Mm -hmm. So it's so much about status and what we believe we need to be accepted and to feel like we are good with ourselves. And I think the whole sustainability debate, it's so much more about understanding what you like 
and being prepared for giving that to yourself. And that even with getting coffee from your coffee place, it really is about understanding that you'll want to have that coffee from your favorite coffee place, knowing that you can't stay inside and so bringing your own coffee cup. Yeah. Because you are prepared for what you like. I use Recup. I think it's a great company. So if anybody needs a reusable cup, Recups are awesome. And they also have bowls. And um, for the browser stuff, I use a Brave browser and they have a DuckDuckGo search engine. It's great. It's two days of being okay with it not looking the way it looked yesterday. I actually have found myself thinking, oh, this looks odd. And then I'm like, oh, because it's a new browser. <laughs> but it's fine. So for the past year, I've been really getting on the nerves of my partner to change his business bank account. Whenever he said he's not so sure what he's going to do today, I'm like, that sounds like a great day to me to change your bank account. <laughs> I mean, I was really sorry for doing that, but I've kept doing this for almost a year. At some point, it was just another day where he's, it's like the day that he'll use to do like random stuff. And I was like, that sounds like a great day to me, <laughs> your bank account. And he eventually did, you know, when he had to sort of move everything over to his new bank account, because what most people don't know, banks don't hoard your money in a safe and have it in cash. They invest it. And the question is, do they invest it in things that you would want them to see your money invested in? And it's something that a lot of people don't know or a lot of people don't really prioritize. But I think it's a huge priority to change one's bank account. He changed his bank account and he was like, this looks odd. And then he showed me this bank account from like his other bank that he had before. And I'm like, yeah, it just looks different, but it doesn't matter because you'll get used to it. And sure, it's not the bestest bank account I've ever had. The design sucks, but I just much rather know that my money is being invested in something that I don't feel like is destroying our planet by just having my business money, my tax money that I have to keep aside invested in renewable energies and sustainable business and stuff and not in oil and plastics. Great. Yeah, for sure. What is the bank account or the bank that you would recommend for people who are willing to shift? So it depends on what the personal needs are. I'm with three different banks. I use Bank and they have an amazing design. It's a great Dutch challenger bank. They really help you manage your money actively. So it's like for someone who likes to have multiple accounts, for someone who just likes technology... That's a really great bank account. If someone needs a shared bank account and also wants to have a private bank account, then bank is, I would say, the best bank account. Mm -hmm. For business bank account, I would definitely recommend GLS. Mm -hmm. GLS in German. It's been around forever. It, I think they started in the 70s. It, you know, it's the environmentalists that always wanted to do good for the planet and have been doing it for 50 years now. It's a solid business bank account. It's great. And there is now a new bank that is called Tomorrow. It's a German bank. They are green. They have a nice design. The product at this point is not that great as bank is, but I think they are working on it. I mean, yeah, especially if they're early in the development, right? Like you need, exactly. to, need to give them some slack. So exactly. It's also a free bank account. So people can just uh, start mm -hmm. out like that. Bank does cost money. I think it's worth it it's just the benefits and the costs are yeah 
Cool. But these are great recommendations. Every little helps, right? Like every change that you make compounds, even thinking about where your money goes, right? When you don't spend it and obviously banks reinvest it so that they can make a profit. That's the whole point of having a bank. So important stuff to consider as well. There are many sustainability changes that one could and should make, but changing one's bank account is the least effort with the biggest impact. I would say changing electricity and changing one's bank account while electricity, you are, there are those contracts that take forever. You can't do it immediately. Changing your bank account is something that you can do pretty much from one day to another. This is why moving is awesome because when I moved, I had to choose my new energy provider. And so I could choose uh, the green one. So if people don't know how to get yourselves into getting a better energy contract, uh, move to another apartment. (laughs) (laughs) But also that's okay. That's the tricky thing. And now this is where it gets more complex because just because you have renewable energy from a re- like from a provider doesn't mean that it's 100% renewable energy. So they only have to have a part of the energy that is renewable. And there are only a few companies in Germany that actually provide 100% renewable energy from renewable sources. Having a renewable energy contract from a regular energy provider is the first step, but actually the better step would be to have it from a company that is 100% renewable. Mine is super small. So they're, they're not like the one of the main ones, but a friend of mine is working on this startup uh, called to resonance and they're trying to build a better understanding of, you know, where your energy comes from and also those at home meters. So you can actually see where is this energy coming from? And it's not just, you know, like, oh, on paper it says this, but actually it's 199%, you know, oil and then maybe a little bit of renewables. A lot of great startups, I think in the, in the space right now, trying to, solve for for those issues but as we are speaking of those issues what are the key ones today that you're seeing that we need to take care of so i think we have to separate on a business level and on a on a personal level right so it's on a business level it's so much about what does the company stand for and what does it mean in more detail what are the decisions that you make for a lot of people that could be made more sustainable And that on one hand has to do with the understanding of the team members of Mm -hmm. what is important to them, what are their values, Mm -hmm. and where are they open to experiment as a change together in the group. So it's a lot of just community team building, really. Mm -hmm. And this is also how we approach it. It's like we have different workshop models. It's like we either have workshop models for the leadership team, where it's so much more about strategically, how do you position the company? in the sustainability debate and what other things where you want to execute on, like what do you prioritize and how do you communicate about it? And we also have this part for teams where we work with the teams and it's so much more about team values and how, how do you choose the subjects that are important to the team where you, or where we bring in input and support the team during the change process of implementing things. So you stay with the client as well through the implementation. If, if they ask us to do that, yes. That's awesome. The hardest part about consulting so many times is that you come up with recommendations, you come up with a plan and you hand it off 
and it's being left on the shelf, you know, it's never being uh, implemented. So an even better investment than only just the initial workshops is having that support and in, in implementation. This is where the most friction happens, right? Like when people are like, oh, we actually have to do it because in the brainstorming sessions, it's always super cool. Easy and easy and everybody's very creative and very enthusiastic but then at the end of the day what happens is we will have separate bins and you will have to always disassemble the packaging and really always put it in the right one and you will always have to take your reusable cup to the coffee shop we we had a lot of recaps at the office and that was always awesome because we would always just everybody would uh, have their own but it was a habit that came to you maybe through the company you know someone initiated it in the company and then other people took up that habit oh yeah 100 percent for sure normalized it oh, and yeah. that's sort of the important thing that it's about normalizing habits that some people might not even dare to live openly Mm. but it's so true right like with recap is a great example they have very cool cups they look they're nicely designed it holds the drink it's warm and you're you're supporting a great cause and that's awesome like what i see sometimes when people sometimes if i forget it and i get a coffee and people put my coffee into a double paper cup it drives me insane because I never ask for it. And they're like, oh, it's hot. I'm like, I have gloves. And if I wanted it, I would have asked for it. And it, then it's really hard to like take it apart. And then you cannot reuse the other pla- uh, paper cup because it's already been, you know, touched by somebody. And it's just... It's- okay. And now I'm going to take a step back from this, right? That person took a decision that they have normalized for themselves, but it's also branding because they gave you something that you disagree with. It really made you angry. In your perception, that company has no sustainability standards whatsoever. Just because this one person put it into a cup, just because no one ever talked about it in the team. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Is that a stance of the company or is that the stance of the individual but at the same time, like they're representing the company as they're working and they're making those those decisions. For instance, 19 grams remove their plastic lids from their shops entirely. So they only have the paper cup if somebody doesn't have their own, but there's no lids anymore. There's no plastic lids. And I can tell you that one of the people that is responsible for marketing and branding at 19 grams is someone who has worked with me at uh, Vegans, who is super switched on when it comes to so many things. Her name is Eve. She's great. It wouldn't surprise me if this was her decision or if she was the person that pushed this decision. Yeah. Shout out to 19 grams. Uh, we're, linked, <laughs> we're linked to them if anybody wants to get great coffee. And they also have, yeah, they also have all of those like, at home uh, aeropresses and stuff that you can buy and then you can keep on making coffee at home, which I think is also great. And it supports them as well in those difficult times. We're going back to thinking about those changes that need to be done on the business level. You guys are going off of their values, connecting, I guess, with the strategy and or, or the, the business that they're actually conducting. You're trying to build a, a, a new plan and new habits for them to implement and, and make it more sustainable. Is that I would not say right? I would not say that we plan and like put in our ideas. I do disagree with that just because I think there is a lot of knowledge inside of companies. And it's much more about bringing out the knowledge from people yeah, that's or what I meant. establishing a shared understanding. So I wouldn't see us as being the people that do everything. I see us more as people that start 
and drive and facilitate a conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's what I meant. And then like we can bring in the impulses and make people aware of certain things that they might have not even consciously thought about. But it is really about making the inside company knowledge flourish. Yeah, that's awesome. Can you share maybe some examples of companies that you worked with already, or maybe not even by name, but what has come out of those workshops that you've done with them? So there's often this, wow, I didn't notice. You know, there's always this, I've learned so much, making people so much more aware of what might be easy, but what they didn't really have the language or the words for, for them to also be able to explain things in a way that they can pass it on. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lot of just insight because what I like to do is really deconstruct how to do things. And that's also what you said, you know, a consultancy, they like give advice, they hand over a deck and then they leave. And that was sort of the situation in the first agency where I've worked in a strategic consultancy. We would give advice and tips and show mega trends, but that is not where the hard part is happening. Like I can hand you over a strategy deck that has zero meaning if you don't know how to pick it up and execute on it. If it takes me a year to get someone to a level Mm. where they switch their bank account, then obviously change is hard. Mm. Yeah. But I think we have to find ways to make change easier. And it's enough if one person that really has the power to enable change and help build the framework for it does it and then decides for many people without them even noticing it. Because if you come to a shared space you're much more likely to accept how things are being done. And I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of people that recycle properly at home and have to be in a company that doesn't manage to recycle. Both ways it happens, right? Like it might be the company is very forward thinking and they start recycling and that teaches you that you can also do it at home very well. Ideal scenario. Yeah, ideal scenario. To really take the company as the platform where people learn something that brings them further. And it's like there's a difference between, you know, we can talk about the things on a personal level and really show you how to change things on a personal level. But it's also so much more about making people aware of what's the discourse and how is the world changing. Because I think if you read the news, it's so difficult to understand what is really happening. And so I think it's always the mix about practical tips that you can implement and that are interesting and understanding the bigger context of how the world is changing and moving and also giving people the ability to start asking questions, start researching, because often it's just so hard to understand where to start. And I think I also And with the work that we do, it's also so much more about simplifying the language and enabling people to ask better questions. And when you think about the recent changes, especially to how people are working, and you've mentioned this very early on in our conversation that remote work, when you were first starting, was not a thing. Now everybody is working from home mostly at least from the recent polls, a lot of people are hoping for this flexible mode in the future as well, where they can go to the office, but they can also work from home. So the office still be is, is going to be a part of their work life. So how are you guys now trying to embed that new trend into teaching people about those new habits or those better habits so they can use them better in their home office space? 
So yesterday I was part of a conversation where I was told that there are companies that enforce people to turn on their camera while they are working because companies don't trust them that they actually work while they are working from home. That's wild. (laughs) It's a good comment. Yeah, it's wild. It's crazy. And it always brings me back to this question of like, why are we here? Why does this matter? I really doubt that intelligent people just want to sit around not having any impact for eight hours a day. Like, I really, really disagree with that. Sometimes a job is about making money, but then it's also about so much more. It's about the community. It's Mm -hmm. about the shared time. Maybe the product isn't the most interesting thing, but there is a toilet paper company that does wild things. They are deep in design. They are doing social NGO projects in Africa. You can take any boring company and turn it into something really, really interesting that people believe in. But I think it's so much about having a conversation about the values and about the shared values in a company and understanding what those values really bring. And so it all doesn't matter if we are working remotely. It really all comes to the question of why are we here? It's fascinating that in the end of the day, the people that don't find themselves engaged, it's because they do not share the same values with the company, with the management. If you're in a place where your values, your core values are being respected and followed, then you also feel like you should reciprocate and you reciprocate with good work, right? With collaboration, with motivation. It's also a good data point. I always say that for people, like when you notice that the values that your values are, have changed maybe, or the organization that you're in does not share your values, then maybe it's a good time to move on. Also just give yourself a gift of being able to work somewhere where you can actually add value, right? Or where you can be around people that have the same value system that you do. So in the end, it just has such a huge ripple effect, like where you work and who you work with, huge impact. So many hours of the day, every day, right? So an important thing to consider if you're not seeing that, if you're not being treated the way you want to be treated, or you're not in the environment that helps you achieve more. And now we get back to your question from the beginning. It's like, what does this actually mean? Because I've been in enough branding workshops where it was all about how are we going to be perceived from the outside world? What Mm -hmm. values do we write on our website? Oh, yeah. It's nice that you've written your values on your website, but what does this mean? Yeah. How do you live those values day in? How do you live those values? And I think that's a discussion point. Yeah, uh, there's many companies that have really outstanding leadership and great values And you can really see them following them in every single thing they do. And this is so inspiring to me. But there's also some that don't and sadly don't have that culture. It's a great thing to think about, especially if you're building your own company. You need to spend time on this. This should be probably at the core of who you are as an organization, as a business, as a leader, as a team. So much stems from how you design your values and from how you design your culture. A big part of that is also caring for the environment and working with you guys or similar agencies to to help design it in in a sustainable way. Speaking of working with you, do you guys also work with companies outside of Germany. I, I imagine that, you know, in the remote, in the remote environment, everybody can work anywhere. Anything is possible, Anything right? Anything is possible now. <laughs> now we really focus on Germany. 
Mm-hmm. Germany, Austria, but it, even in our communication, we invest so much of our time and effort into German communication. And fun fact or not so, sustainability is also a very local thing. Not every advice, especially to B2B companies that you give in one country is relevant to another country. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of scaling really the impact, focusing on a smaller region, which for us at this moment is German-speaking countries, which doesn't mean that we can't do other countries because I've also lived in enough countries to understand what the normal is there. It definitely makes it easier to scale business if you focus on a certain region. But we also noticed that in Germany, companies are much slower to react. Oh, interesting. While in, other, while in other regions, people are so much more open to new ideas and so much more open to trying things out. It's so much more this experimental attitude of trying things out fast and maybe also failing fast instead of just planning for really long. The times to make a decision in Germany is just a slower one. And I think anyone who has done business with international companies will second that. Is it also true for the Berlin startups or German startups in general? Oh, that's hard to say. I think if you live in a system that is slow, you'll also slow down. Oh, interesting. I always thought that German startups are, because they're very international and they'll, they'll be faster to execute, but maybe, maybe you're right. It uh, weighs down on you. I wanted to maybe close off with some final thoughts on the big trends that we have not been considering lately. And you see, you know, working in this on a daily basis as some that we should be, first of all, focusing on, educating ourselves on and trying to work against them, especially if there are those negative ones. So I would like to rephrase the question a bit. And it's more about what is something that we believe that might need to change for the future. So what is something that we think is right that the trend is probably changing the status quo of? And the one big belief that I think we need to dismantle somehow as a society is what's been good and has worked so far is also going to work tomorrow. I've always been doing things this certain way. I should continue doing them the same way in the future. And we have had this discussion before And I would like to pick it up again, which is about food, because I've been thinking so much about it. We always have this idea that the food that our grandparents ate and that our parents ate and that our ancestors ate is the good food. It's like, you know, it's the food of the past is really healthy for us and it's good for us. But what we need to think about is how the circumstances of that are changing, that the logistics of the past worked and the scale at which things worked in the past is still contemporary in today's society. One example, X, it used to be status quo that most people had a few chickens in the backyard and that the chickens gave them eggs. And sometimes the chickens didn't give any eggs and sometimes they did give eggs. And if you look at the numbers, it's like a chicken, if you wouldn't take away the eggs, would give 15 eggs a year. In the industry, one chicken is expected to give between 250 and 280 eggs. It's insane. It's insane. If we continue thinking that this is how it worked so far, it makes sense. This is how we can continue. I kind of disagree because unlearning that you can actually do without X is an unlearning process Mm -hmm. of being open to other opportunities of how you can replace how you've always done recipes with X. One simple example, I'm not saying eggs aren't tasty. I've always really liked the taste of X, but also 
in the context of our current society and how the logistics of our current society that mostly lives in cities and has no idea where the food is coming from to the supermarket shelves. It's just no longer contemporary to be like, okay, this is how we eat eggs because mm -hmm. truth is we have no idea how, how the eggs come to be that we get to eat. And that's the hard part, sort of seeing how we've always been doing things and learning how the process of those things being in our lives, how the logistics has changed. Yeah, food is a huge one, right? Huge first one. of all, first of all, if we ate half of what we're eating, we would be fine. Because <laughs> people just eat too much and they don't eat the right stuff. I partly disagree with that because there's just so much food waste that it's not even about people eating more than they are supposed to eat. It's more about people actually eating up what they buy. Mm. Food waste is a massive issue. It's, there's a fun random fact is that if food waste was a country, then it was the third most polluted country in the world. And that's just food waste. That's just mm. the food that we buy or grow that no one ever eats. In the US, I heard that the food waste is at 40%. So whatever they it's, buy, 40%, 40 goes out to the... Been. And I wouldn't think this is an exaggeration. I would think that probably it's very accurate. I think it's like 30 in Europe. Yeah. I might lie. I would not put my hand into fire for this. Yeah, yeah, of course. I of think course. it's it's at around 30 in Europe. Okay, so food is first. Food would be the first thing we can look at in our homes and fridges and see what we're eating and where the food is coming from and how to better manage that process of even purchasing food, which is trying to get stuff that is not packed in plastic, that we can get reusable bags from, try to buy from local markets, which I guess we in Berlin are pretty lucky to have quite a few of those. It's not as difficult really to get vegetables and fruit from the local farmers. I think it's much easier because when you think the status quo is what you buy into your fridge is coming from the same supermarket where you always bought that food from, then the easiest change to really rewire that problem is to just not go to the same supermarket again, mm. but then go to the farmer's market where you automatically, if you buy from organic farmers, ideally, um, which is cheaper than in the supermarket, by the way, most people don't have that on their radar. If you buy organic fruit from the, directly from the farmer, then they won't give you bags to put it in. You'll most likely have to bring your own bag to bring it home with. And that immediately changes the setup of how you make decisions. And then you can automatically make more sustainable decisions. Yeah, that's, that's super helpful. What's your favorite farmer's market? I keep going back to Boxy, which makes no sense. But I really like the market at Boxhagener Platz. I've lived in five apartments just in Friedrichshain. So Boxy was always the one where I've <laughs> been going to. And now I live in Neukölln. I could happily go to the one at Maybach Ufer, even walk there. And I still cycle, regardless of the weather, to Boxy to just go to Boxy. I love that market at Boxy. I was there last Saturday. It's it's so cool. It's so great. And just the colors, if you see like when the farmers put out all the vegetables and all the fruit, it's uh, super nice. And yeah. local butchers also very hard to find. So the Berlin website has Bio Fleischer 
Berlin, you get on a website that is by the city of Berlin. Mm -hmm. And there are addresses of organic butchers in Berlin. And I think it's about maybe six or seven in the whole city. Okay, well, that's not bad. Six or seven is better than zero. So a little bit. and then if I if I can say something about the meat as well, just because I think that's also something that people don't know. There's one thing about how animals are being bred. It can be organic. The issue is more that they are most likely not slaughtered in the same location where they are being bred. And so it's very unlikely that a mm -hmm. cow didn't have to go onto travel. a truck mm -hmm. and travel because so that stress is still there. So the stress is still there. If people would just slaughter the animal in the backyard, just like I grew up with, because this is what my grandparents did, I would say okay-ish, but that's just not how the reality works. Everyone. Well, it's just logistics that have scaled up, right? But it's like scale doesn't necessarily help. Anyway, you wanted to ask something else. Anything that you would want to share apart from the food um, the element? Food. <laughs> Yeah, I think if someone is interested in the subject, we just blog a lot on our website, newstandard.studio. We have a blog where we just share not just what can change, but also how. So if someone really wants to look deeper into the subject, then that's where you can find it. Okay, we'll link to it in the show notes. And to finish off, we'll do the VP roulette. So you get to choose three numbers from one to 10 and answer random questions is what are the top three things that you do for you? I cook every morning and listen to podcasts. I prepare lunchbox, which is a crazy habit that I picked up two years ago now. At the beginning, I did it to save money. And now I just really, really like it. And so every day in the morning, I get up, I'm super motivated because I know that I have one hour of making kombucha and making lunch and making breakfast. And it's like, I get to listen to a lot of thoughts of interesting people in the podcast that I listen to. Mm -hmm. That's um, okay. The second thing is I got myself a dog. And so there's not a day where I wouldn't have to go out several times. And I really like the cheese, my break manager, because you can't ignore a dog. And so it's like, it's not even that I do it for myself. I do it for her, but actually I do it for myself. And now in the winter, because she hates going out so much, it's very clear that actually she does it for us because we still haven't installed a toilet in our apartment for her. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's the second thing. And then the third thing is, good question. I stopped using an alarm clock many, many, many years ago, or like forced myself to any specific times. I automatically wake up at 7.37 in the morning and just get up. And I think just at some point really giving myself the freedom to not force myself to like go to bed at a certain time or get up at a certain time just having this free now so many years later of having lived with that for me it's normal but I remember it was very big when I first started doing that to just like accept how much sleep my body needs. I've only recently stopped using the alarm today I actually had to wake up for a 6 a.m call so I use the alarm clock, but I can see that it's such a different way to start a day. It really changes, um, I think, a lot for you in a good way. Okay. What's your next question? What's Number your next seven. Number? Seven is the best advice you've ever gotten. I got many good advices. So it's hard to pick one. One thing that stuck with me that is not an advice, but I think it's very beautiful to have that worldview. A friend of mine said, as long as you believe that the better things are ahead of you, you're young. Once you believe that you have lived through the better things in your life, that you've already passed that, you're old. 
And I think that's a really beautiful way at how you can look at young and old people and what is young and what is old. Because if someone is still enthusiastic and like still sort of planning and doing things and is excited about whatever comes their way, then you can really say that they are young despite of being 80 or older. But if someone sort of has the feeling like, oh, they've already lived through it, then it's an old soul and it's okay. That's a beautiful way to put it. I won't add anything to it. Just leave everybody with that notion and have it sink in. And the last one. Number eight. Uh, your favorite game or app on your phone. One app that has proven the most useful in my life. And it's not a game. It's called Moneybook. And Moneybook is an expense tracking tool. This is not what you were expecting at all, because I can see your face. <laughs> oh, it's actually, I was just thinking, because most people don't play games. And I was just thinking about Artyom, because when Artyom was on the podcast, he, he just said Spotify. Somebody else said Audible. So I think everybody, it's interesting that everybody has, puts, I think, value into different things. And it's fine. Yeah, so I never had a lot of money. I worked a lot during my studies and during high school. So life was always kind of very much like, you know, trying to figure out how to deal with finances. And also with freelancing, I never knew how much I would earn. And so knowing how much I was spending gave me some sort of a control that I didn't really have. And so I think Tracking my expenses has given me a lot of headspace. Mm -hmm. What is something that other people use headspace for? I've used Moneybook for just because it really confronted me with my spending habits and it really confronted me with being in control of my finances and my life in that sense. Mm. Yeah, I mean, whatever works, right? For some people need headspace, some people need money book and whatever <laughs> makes you more relaxed, that also works. Okay, yeah. well, that concludes our awesome conversation. Thank you so much, Monica, for taking the time. It, it's been lovely. It's also lovely outside from what I can see from in your window and also it's sunny. Yeah. my window. So we should make we should both go out of, of that sun as, as soon as we can. But thank you so much for being on the podcast and I will obviously everyone can look everything up in the show notes and get in touch and I am sure that there's going to be many many companies and many founders that would want to work with you guys I hope so yeah I hope so especially because we now rented an office space and we are looking for people to move in with us so we need people around us to also be able to enjoy the office properly I'm sure I'm sure there's going to be plenty I've also yeah I shared that on my LinkedIn so hopefully there's going to be more people reaching out and yeah like I like I mentioned in the beginning the fantastic duo uh, is looking for more people to join them actually it's a trio if we count if, yeah, if you count my dog then it's definitely so a trio for dog lovers and passionate people, it's a great space to be and collaborate. So for now, thank you so much. Yeah, hopefully we'll see each other at Boxy or at the canal uh, very, very soon. Yeah, thank you.